So two weeks ago, before Hurricane Harvey did everything that it has done, we began a remembrance of Jerusalem, the central city of the Bible, the city that many ancient maps consider to be the center of the earth. Jerusalem has been and continues to be a city rich in history, tradition, and beauty, while also possessing an unsettling depth of tragedy, turmoil, and violence. This journey of Jerusalem that we have undertaken is a journey of wonder, grief, and hope. Today, we find ourselves along the journey during the reign of King Hezekiah, as told in the book of Isaiah, chapters 36 and 37, a story that is echoed in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. Now, before anyone panics and thinks that we are all about to recite the entirety of four chapters of the Hebrew Bible, let me quote the immortal words of Inigo Montoya from The Prince's Bride. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. This is Sennacherib. Sennacherib. Everybody say Sennacherib. It's a fun word to say, even though he was a bad dude. Uh, Sennacherib was the king of Assyria during the late 8th century BCE and the early 7th century BCE. The Assyrians were the global military superpower of their time. They terrified the ancient Hebrews. They murdered people in mass, enslaved them, oppressed them, and subjugated them in horrifying and humiliating ways. Writing of Sennacherib, theologian and scholar Walter Brueggemann states these words. Sennacherib is the cipher for every shameless military power that imagines it can operate without restraint on the abuse of the environment and on the brutal exploitation of the population. Yikes. Quite a legacy. The picture over here on my left depicts an Assyrian ruler controlling some subjects through a chain piercing into the subject's nose, lips, or tongue by which they could be painfully controlled and yanked around. The Assyrians were the world dominators, the conquerors, and they had no problem reminding everyone of their power. Sometime between 705 and 701 BCE, Sennacherib set his sights on the kingdom of Judah and King Hezekiah in the holy city of Jerusalem. These are the prisms of Sennacherib, the, the, the annals of Sennacherib. These prisms are actually Assyrian writings that have the details of Sennacherib's conquest inscribed upon them. They even contain some quotes from Sennacherib himself. Listen to what Sennacherib had to say about his conquest of the kingdom of Judah and its king Hezekiah. As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns taken in battle with my battering rams. I took as plunder 200,150 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. As for Hezekiah... I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. I then constructed a series of fortresses around him, and I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. 
Now, the biblical account of these same events found in Isaiah 36 and 37 agree for the most part with the annals of Sennacherib. If we're looking for empirical evidence and historical agreement, we can actually find some. These events really did happen. Sennacherib was the real king of a very real nation that laid siege to the kingdom of Judah and even set his sights specifically on Jerusalem and King Hezekiah. Sennacherib really did capture many cities surrounding Jerusalem, and he really did surround Jerusalem, shutting Hezekiah up like a caged bird. But here's the thing. This story isn't recorded in Isaiah and again in 2 Kings to provide us empirical evidence and historical agreement. The ancient Hebraic writers had something bigger in mind than history and proof. Walter Brueggemann goes so far as to say that Isaiah's account of Hezekiah and Sennacherib is closer to a sermon than it is to history. That it is not and does not intend to be a historical document, but rather a theological testimony, invitation, and threat. Now that's probably not what most of us who wrestle with the book of Isaiah are looking for. But I think Brueggemann is absolutely right. I think the testimony, invitation, and threat of this story are precisely the point. Testimony, invitation, and threat. Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that breathes freedom from the 37th chapter of Isaiah. Meanwhile, the cupbearer of Sennacherib learned that Sennacherib had left Lahish and was already engaged in battle against the city of Libna. The news prompted him to send messengers to Hezekiah with another message. Tell the Judean king, Hezekiah, don't listen to your God whom you're counting on when he tells you that the king of Assyria won't conquer Jerusalem. Look around you and listen to the reports of what the Assyrian king has already done to the neighboring nations. How can he destroy them and let you get away? This line of Assyrian kings has demolished all sorts of nations and peoples. Think of Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the children of Eden and Telassar. None of their gods saved them. While we're at it, what do you think happened to the kings of Hamath, Arpad, Sepharvaim, Hena, and Eva? We destroyed them. You will not get away. When Hezekiah got the written message, he read it. Then he took it to the temple, spread it out before the Eternal One, and began to pray. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Testimony, invitation, and threat. Now there are plenty of testimonies within this story. We've already heard the testimony of Sennacherib himself. And in the scripture that we just heard, we got to hear some of the testimony of Sennacherib's cupbearer, which is essentially his emissary or his director of communications. And if we read through all the biblical accounts of this story, we would also find plenty of testimony from the prophet Isaiah. But I want to submit to you this morning that it's possible that the testimony this story is meant to preserve and pass on is the testimony of Hezekiah. Now, for that to be the case, we'll have to distinguish between testimony and talking. 
And that doesn't come naturally to us. We equate testimony with talking. But if we're going to notice Hezekiah, it can't just be about talking because he doesn't talk too much in his story. And to be clear, there is a great deal of talking in this story. Most of the people in this story have plenty to say. Sennacherib, the cupbearer, Isaiah, Hezekiah's advisors, even the Lord speaks at great length through the prophet Isaiah. But Hezekiah doesn't speak that much. And it's not that his words, he has this short prayer in the middle, and it's not that the words of his prayer aren't important. They are. It's just that Hezekiah's actions speak so much louder than his words or any of the words that surround him. In fact, I would submit to you that Hezekiah's actions are the loudest human voice in this entire story. Hezekiah's testimony is his behavior. It's what he does. And to recognize that, we're going to need a little context. We need to notice a remez. Now, we talk about a remez quite a bit around here. It's a contextual tool that we have learned from our Jewish brothers and sisters, a way of seeing the greater connective story of the scripture. Remez is the Hebraic word for hint. Everybody say remez. Remez. All right. It's a directional arrow that points back to an earlier story. An example of a remez that's easy for Christians to recognize is in the opening of John's gospel. John begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning. Now, that's not a coincidence. That is not a common way of starting a gospel. That is a remez. When John starts his gospel with the words, in the beginning, he is pointing his audience to another story that began with the words, in the beginning. He's providing a directional arrow that points back to Genesis. So what's the remez in the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib? Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that breeds freedom from the 36th chapter of Isaiah. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. The king of Assyria sent the cupbearer from Lahish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. The cupbearer relayed the words of Sennacherib. How come you're so sure of yourself? Your strategy and strength for war seem to be limited to diplomacy and empty words. Now that you've rebelled against me, who are you really relying on? The cupbearer, representing Sennacherib, goes up to Jerusalem, stands outside the city walls with the Assyrian army behind him, and taunts them, telling all of Jerusalem of their impending doom. Now listen to this portion of the story of God that documents a time before Hezekiah, a time when his father Ahaz was king. In the days of Ahaz, the king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and King Pekah of Ephraim went up to attack Jerusalem. When Jerusalem heard that Aram had joined with Ephraim, Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed, stay calm. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. 
because of these two angry firebrands. Can we hear it? Can we hear the remez? There is a hint within Hezekiah's story that points us back to this story. The cupbearer, the emissary of Sennacherib, stands by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway to the fuller's field and taunts Jerusalem. That is a strangely specific place to stand. Unless we notice the remez and recognize that one generation before Hezekiah, Isaiah stood in the very same spot and told Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, who was also under threat of attack, take heed, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. When we hear that remez, the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, we are supposed to connect these two stories. It's our directional arrow. Is it possible that the reason we're supposed to connect these two stories is so that we can notice the testimony of Hezekiah? Just like his son would, Ahaz faced the siege of Jerusalem when he saw armies coming against him. But if we follow Ahaz through his besiegement, we learn that Ahaz did not listen to the prophet Isaiah. Instead, he relied on what made sense to him. Strategy. Manipulation. Forming an alliance, Ahaz set about taking care of the problem himself. And that's not even the worst of it. Our hearts should sink when we learn with whom Ahaz strategized and formed an alliance. Who Ahaz called to get himself and Jerusalem out of trouble. He called the Assyrians. Now, one generation later, the son of Ahaz, Hezekiah, is king and is standing in the exact same spot where Isaiah once stood as the emissary of the Lord, stands the emissary of Sennacherib, taunting Jerusalem as a caged bird and proclaiming their imminent destruction. But Hezekiah doesn't strategize. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't form a military alliance. He doesn't even consult his advisors. Now, don't miss this. All hell is breaking loose. Hezekiah knows this. Just like his father, he recognizes there is no way out. He knows he can't go on as though there is no crisis. There is a crisis. Things are not as they once were. Dramatic change, violent change is knocking on the door. What does Hezekiah do? He does something that his father and his advisors had neglected to do. He refers the matter to God. He takes the written taunts of Sennacherib to the temple, lays them out before the Lord, and prays. Now that may seem like a no-duh moment to most of you, like a no-brainer as in what else is he supposed to do. But I have to confess, I don't do this. When all hell is breaking loose in my world, when I feel that something I love, something I want to hold on to and preserve is under siege, I will do anything to make it stop. I am like Ahaz. I ask, how can I get out of this? How can I make this stop? With whom can I make an alliance to defeat my enemies? 
Who can I enlist to join my army so that I can push back against that which is threatening me? The last thing you'll catch me do is being still before the Lord. When my holy city is under siege, you'd better believe that I will get right to work defending myself, fighting back, or at the very least, bracing myself against the coming tide. But I think the reason this remez exists in the text, this odd double reference to the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, is to help us notice the testimony of Hezekiah. He's not like me. He's not like his father Ahaz. Hezekiah is not like anyone else in this story. He quietly and faithfully keeps the Lord as his reference point. The Lord and nothing else. Not the taunts of Sennacherib. Not the intimidating presence of the Assyrian army outside the gate. Not the counsel or fear of his advisors. And not even the path of his father before him. Hezekiah's testimony is a model of faith. And therein lies the invitation to this story as well. Hezekiah sees the writing on the wall and remains steadfast in saying to God, I'm with you. Several years ago, I attended a symposium where the biblical scholar and theologian N.T. Wright was teaching on the Apostle Paul. During the question and answer portion of that conference, someone asked Dr. Wright how he thought Paul would define faith. He answered, wherever this goes, I'm with you. If I remember nothing else from that symposium, I will remember that for the rest of my life because that is it. That's faith. Wherever this goes, I'm with you. And that's the testimony of Hezekiah. To Hezekiah, faith is not about belief. It's about relationship. Staying connected even when your belief is weak. Faith is saying to God, wherever this goes, even if you don't stop this, even if the Assyrians at the gate burn our holy city down, I'm with you. But we also need to recognize it's not a one-sided declaration. Faith is also God saying to us, wherever this goes, I'm with you. It's God declaring, wherever this goes, even if you can't possibly see a way forward, even if this part of the story results in your suffering or even your death, I'm with you. The God of Hezekiah, the God of Isaiah, the God that gathers us here today declares in a voice that reverberates throughout history, wherever this goes, even to death on a cross, I'm with you. We say it to God. God says it to us. And there's one more part. We say it to each other. Faith is also saying to those with whom you do life, your community, your tribe, your faith family, wherever this goes, I'm with you. That's the testimony of Hezekiah in this story. He goes to God and says, wherever this goes, I'm with you. 
he stands with the presumably condemned people of Jerusalem who are staring down the meanest army the world has ever seen and says, wherever this goes, I'm with you. But it's not just the testimony of Hezekiah. It's also the invitation of the Lord. Before Hezekiah could even think these words, God had been declaring them for generations to Abraham, to Sarah, to Rebekah, to Isaac, to Rachel, Leah, and Jacob. Wherever this goes, I'm with you. And that invitation extends to all of us. It's an invitation to add our declaration to the testimony of Hezekiah, to add our behavior of relationship and connection to the great cloud of witnesses throughout history who have declared, wherever this goes, I'm with you. The testimony and the invitation, which only leaves the threat. Brueggemann suggested that this story is a testimony, an invitation, and a threat. So what's the threat? Some might say the threat of this story is Sennacherib, that evil brings with it all sorts of terror and dehumanization, and we need to be on guard against it. And they might be right. After all, Sennacherib never took Jerusalem. Others might suggest that the threat of this story is the Lord threatening Sennacherib and other scoundrels like him to repent or face the wrath of God. And they might be right too, because Sennacherib abandoned his siege of Jerusalem, went back to Nineveh, and was assassinated by one of his sons. Less than 60 years later, the Assyrian Empire fell to the Babylonians. Given the remez that we examine today, we might even conclude that the threat of this story is to have faith like Hezekiah or be prepared to suffer the consequences. But I think it's more than that. All of those ideas still leave something out. I think the threat of this story lies in the annals of Sennacherib. The threat is in Sennacherib's own bragging words. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. The thread of this story is in Sennacherib's consciousness, how he saw the world and his tragic choice to think of God's people as caged birds. Sennacherib thought he had caged Hezekiah. The people of Jerusalem believed him. They thought they were encaged. But who was really in the cage? The threat of this story is that this God, the God of Isaiah, the God of, of Isaiah, the God of Hezekiah, doesn't do cages. This is the free God who desires relationship with free people. This God destroys cages. None of us belong in a cage. Whether we are the oppressed or the oppressor, 
The threat of this story is the God who comes against each and every cage. Sometimes, as in the case of Hezekiah, our cage is easy to recognize. It echoes the past. It looks just like the path of our father before us. It comes in the form of an easily recognizable, brutal military regime laying violent siege to our holy city. But other times, as in the case of Ahaz, or even Sennacherib himself, the cage is the last thing we would expect it to be. Sennacherib's entire way of life, of ruling, controlling, and encaging people, dragging them around by their lips, actually imprisoned him. It led to his assassination and the downfall of the entire Assyrian Empire. Now, if I'm honest, there have been times in my life when I am as oblivious to the cage around me as Sennacherib himself. Times when I mistook the bars of my cage for home or holiness or maybe even the will of God. In such times, I usually have to be dragged kicking and screaming from my prison cell, usually quite painfully. And even if I get dragged out, I usually fight with every fiber of my being to get right back in. But this God, the God to whom Hezekiah testifies, the God who declares and invites wherever this goes, I'm with you. The God who loves us hates the cage. When it comes to cages, this God threatens. If you're close to the bars, no matter what side of them you may think you're on, watch out. The free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wings in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with fearful trill of the things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze, and the trade winds soft through the sighing trees, and the fat worms waiting on a dawn-bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams. His shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped, and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom.